Ralph and happy dog training and welcome to another episode of Dog Talk. Today I want to talk about creating reliability in dog training or when training dogs. So the first thing I think to consider is what reliability are you actually looking for for the dog you're working with. And that is going to vary vastly depending on what you're doing with your dog. If you're a pet dog owner, most of us, um, your requirements for reliability will be different than someone who has a working dog in some kind of professional capacity. So if you tell your dog to sit your pet and or down and you have to repeat yourself two or three times, most people don't care. I mean, it's not that reliable at that point, but most people actually don't care if they just have to say it two or three times and then the dog ends up doing it. So that is not really great reliability, but for a pet, often great reliability from an owner's perspective. Because if your dog's really doing it, he understands it, and you don't mind saying it one more time or two more times. And that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. If you are happy with your dog and your dog generally does what you want him to do, that's great. Uh, so for my personal dogs, I don't have that many requirements. I want, I want them to come back when I call them because that's a safety issue. Otherwise, they're my buddies and I don't need them to know all kinds of commands. So my personal dogs are probably the least trained dogs that we have in the home. We also have service dogs from my, from my partner, Sarah, and they're obviously highly trained and they will do things way more reliably and consistently than my pets, who I really don't train all that much. But that's me, that's personally. The clients I train for I train very reliable behaviors for their pets because that's what they come here for and that's what they're looking for. So all the dogs I train for clients are way more reliable than my personal dogs because I personally don't really care aside from a recall. So, but that's me and that's a personal choice. And you decide for you as your, uh, for your dog, what, what do you want? What do you care about? Uh, what's important to you? What do you need to be rock solid and what? is really optional or doesn't matter all that much or you're okay with kind of. It's all personal choice when it comes to a pet. There's no right or wrong when it comes to this per se. But when you have professional dogs, that equation changes drastically. So when you have police dogs that have to apprehend people and they have to do this around other people in public or drug sniffing dogs or when you have military dogs or you have service dogs like we're training here, service dogs for people with disabilities. Well, service dogs are not just for veterans. A lot of people seem to believe that service dogs are solely for veterans come from war. That's not the case. The, the majority of service dogs who perform a service tasks for people with disabilities actually go to the average person and not any kind of military veteran. They get those too, but that's probably, I don't know, 5 or 10% of all service dogs really just go into veterans. The majority of service dogs with disabilities go to people who live in civil society. And those dogs need to have a high level of reliability. So let's take an extreme example um, of a guide dog for blind people. Well, the dog cannot lead you into traffic because there's a squirrel, right? He cannot stop at a traffic light sometimes. It's, he has to stop there every time. He has to stop when you tell him to go, but there's a car coming that's not stopping. So there are scenarios for disabilities where you just can't have um, 
flexibility in the reliability of the dog. It's just not feasible. And guide dog is obviously the, the most clear example for that. But this is no different when you have a guide a dog that will alert you to a higher heart rate or blood pressure or blood sugar or helps you in a panic attack or with PTSD or with deafness or with any kind of other cardiac issue. You need the dog to be reliable, pay attention and alert you or help you based on what he was trained for when it matters to you. And when it matters to you is probably in a distractive environment because that's when a lot of these things start to flare up and come out. So reliability in a working dog has to be at a completely different level as for a pet. Um, sports is another one. So people who are engaged in dog sports care very much about the reliability, especially when they get into high, highly competitive sports that even have world competitions like protection sports do. And so the, the more complex the sport is, the harder the sport is, the more competition there's in the sport, the more reliability you ultimately need and the better the training must be for the dog to even be able to compete. And especially when there's international competitions, when you're competing against the best trainer in the world, then you've got to really be good. Otherwise, you're not even on the map. So the, in, in terms of sports, real quick, there's obviously also a hierarchy. There are sports that are very or fairly easy to get into, like dog diving is very popular with a lot of people. I have even clients that are not professional dog trainers at all. They just have a dog who likes jumping into water and they practice and their dog got good at it and go to dog diving competitions with their dog and actually doing quite well. And they're having fun and that's really what it's about for them. If they win, that's icing on the cake, but they just want to have fun with their dog and they're having fun with their dog. But then it gets a bit more complicated when you have more complex sports. So one of the now a little bit more elaborate sports, but still fairly easy in comparison to others, would be agility. And I'm saying it's fairly easy compared to others because there is no competing reinforcers built into the sport. So when the, when the agility dog, and this is, you have to teach him that. I mean, this is still impressive, a good agility dog. But the dog goes to the, to the agility course. There is no squirrel running across the course. There is no other dog. There is no food. There is nothing that steals the dog's attention away from the activity. People are usually on the sidelines, maybe in the stadium seating, but they're not on the course. So there is nothing in the, in the activity itself that competes for the dog's attention. And that's what we would call a competing reinforcer or competing motivator. And when you don't have that, again, it becomes easier to train that because you're not really have to stop anything or teach not to do something. You really just focus on doing things. But when you get into the protection sports, and these are the hardest sports to train, and there's inside the different protection sports also a hierarchy of what is really the, the toughest one, um, there are competing motivators built into the sport. So there's not other things on the training field or on the test field that that dog potentially wants or wants a lot and has to ignore to do what we're asking him to do. So there's competing reinforcers built right in. If you want to see how crazy this can get, I mean, look at some of the, the footage on YouTube for IGP, for example, or PSA, American Protection Sport. The things they do in the higher levels, the distractions they put up, the competing reinforcers the dog has to ignore are substantial. So it is, it is not easy to train for that. It requires a better training skill. So people who work in that field have better skill sets. There must, 
otherwise they can't even compete. And the, whatever the, the, the toughest protection sport is, people will vary on that in their opinion. This is opinion. My personal opinion is it's IGP. And that this used to be IPO and Schutzhund, so like the old traditional German uh, protection sport line. And now it's called IGP. They keep changing their name. Um, and that is a German abbreviation for International Working Dog Test, um, basically. But why, the, the reason I think that's the hardest is because you have a lot of competing reinforcers, so you're ultimately ending up having to stop behaviors as well, which we're going to get to in a moment, how that works. But the dog has to look super happy doing this. So you can't have any kind of suppression in that body language of the dog. The dog cannot look depressed, suppressed in any way, shape, or form. You literally cannot win if a dog looks that way in this competition, in IGP. That's not the same in all protection sports. In some, you just get some point deductions but can still title and win if the dog looks suppressed, and IGP cannot. So you're not going to title unless your dog looks super enthusiastic about the whole activity. And I guess even harder, because now you have to maintain that spirit when you have to stop behaviors. But so that's, that's reliability. There's a different um, factors, that different areas of dog sport or different areas of dog training that have different requirements for reliability. And for the pet, it's generally the lowest, but some people have high expectations and then rises up a little bit in the hierarchy and they look for people who can train reliable behaviors, like we created service dogs and, and sport dogs and so forth. So it all is individual for the pet dog, but it's not individual and it's not optional on the service dog side. So you have to make that distinction right there. So whenever you hear of um, like training methods and training tools and approaches, and you may think, well, I don't want to do this with my dog. Okay, but it's not just about your dog. There are other things we do with dogs that dogs actually have a fantastic time doing that require that to participate effectively and accomplish the goals we're after. And most working dogs, they're not like poor dogs who have to work. No, they're happy dogs who get to work because dogs love doing things that have a purpose and that have a meaning. It gives them, gives them joy to do something that is, that is fun and that is meaningful and genetically fulfilling and be part of something. Dogs love that. They don't want to sit around all day and do nothing. I mean, sure, there are some pet dogs that look like that, that's what they want to do. And certain breeds certainly um, generally look like that's what they want to do. Like bulldogs often just hang out, right? just, just lay around, mop around most of the day. But there's so many dog breeds where that's not the case. Like a working line Labrador, working line Golden Retriever, working line Shepherd, Malnoir, Belgian Malnoir. There's so many Border Collies, there's so many dog breeds that people love and have that really rather do stuff than just lie around and sleep. And giving them a purpose and giving them an outlet is a good thing. So it's not something that is a bad thing. So keep that in mind when you look at anything that comes up in discussions about dog training and whatever methods, tools, and whatever people say. Um, don't just look at your own personal dog. Think of the spectrum of what we do with dogs and the lives that dogs can lead that are rich and full and get to do fun things. Because make no mistake, a police dog that's apprehending somebody is having a blast. He's not a poor little soul who has to run after somebody. No, he's enjoying just tremendously. This is a game for him. Won't be a game for the guy he catches, that's for sure. But for the dog, it's just the best thing ever. <laughs> So, um, so the dog's having a blast when they, when they get to do these things. Okay, so that's a little bit background. 
But let's talk about um, reliability more in detail. So there is a common thought process in, in many people that I've noticed over the years doing this, been at this for quite a while, that we just need to teach it more. The dog isn't doing it when we're on the outside, he's not doing it in the park, but he's doing it at home. So we need to teach it better. We need to teach more of it, we need to teach it differently, we need to teach it in, in some other better way and reteach it. And, but it's all about let's teach the task itself differently or more. And that's not really the reason you don't have the reliability that you're looking for. It's not about teaching it harder or teaching more of it. Once your dog has learned what it is, there are other stages to that process that actually go to the reliability. So the, the overall outline or the stages of, of acquisition or learning that we have when we teach a dog skill are the following and they kind of go in order. So the first thing is the acquisition stage. In the acquisition stage, we teach the dog what that is. So let's pick a simple thing, like let's just say a sit, something super simple. Okay? So we have to teach the dog what it means. When I say the word sit, I need you to put your butt on the ground and keep it there. But the second part already, keep it there, is some people want to do that only on a stay, which I don't do that anymore. Why, why, why say sit, stay? I've never met anybody who just wants the dog to sit and get right back up and then say the second word and then he stays. That seems pointless to me, so I don't do it anymore. I built the sit, I built the stay into the sit. So every like stationary command has an implied stay with it, like a sit, a down, a stand. It's an implied stay. If I tell you to sit, well, staying is part of sitting. Otherwise, what's the point of that? So, but that that's how I train this. You can certainly do this with a stay if you prefer. It's not like wrong. It's just, um, but, so I teach the dog a sit, put your butt on the ground, keep it there. That is the acquisition of that behavior. That's the acquisition phase. And in the beginning, we have to help the dog do it. We may help him with a toy he may look at, or we may lure him with food, or we may use a leash or combinations thereof. But we help in some way. We facilitate the process until he gets the idea. So that's the acquisition stage. Then the next is the fluency stage. In the fluency stage, that is when we have, we have fluency. When I can cue it, I just say sit. I don't do anything else. I don't move my hands. I don't have food on my hand. I don't do anything other. I just say the word or give the hand signal or whatever the signal is. It could be a hand signal, right? It's not, it doesn't have to be a word. But I only do that and then the dog does it on his own. Correctly. So then, then I have fluency. So fluency is the next thing I'm looking for in, with a behavior. And then after that, we get into generalization and then discrimination. So generalization is now where reliability kind of comes in. So generalization is where we teach the dog, well, sit means I want you to sit where you are and not necessarily come and sit in front of me. Because a lot of dogs just come to you and then sit in front of you when you say sit. They don't sit behind you, they don't sit over there, they don't sit at a distance, they don't sit when you keep walking, so like a sit in motion. Sit to them means I come to you in front of you and I sit there. And with a pet, that may be totally fine. I don't care, no any dog owner actually thinks that's a bad idea. But it's not correct in terms of what we're actually asking. And when it comes to a service animal, 
that is no longer optional thing. So we want the dog to sit where he is and not necessarily come to us when we say that because a come may not be the, what the thing we're looking for in that moment. So generalization means sit in different contexts, in different environments, with different distraction levels, and so forth. So now we're getting into reliability training, into generalization phase. And then there's also discrimination. Discrimination means, well, you should do this behavior on this one command. Let's say sit. When I say sit, I don't want you to go down. When I say down, I don't want you to sit. These are just different things. So there's a distinction between them. We want the dog to discriminate between different words or signals or sounds and do the right thing every single time just for this one signal. So the discrimination between them is also a reliability aspect. So we're going from acquisition to fluency, generalization, discrimination. And then at the end, there's maintenance. And maintenance is making sure the dog continues to perform at the level we need him to or her. So that is something that's also often not understood initially. It's like, oh, we teach the dog once and then it's good to go. We don't have to do anything. He just knows it forever and he will always do it. We never have to practice a thing. If I haven't done it for a year and I say it again, it should just work. Well, <laughs> that's not really how this works. Right? So you have to maintain behaviors. Let's say you haven't been on a bike in a year, you're not going to be as stable as you were when you did it every day. It'll come back like this, right? It's not going to be like a long learning process. But there's going to be some rustiness to it and you have to get accustomed and maybe it takes you like five to ten minutes before you feel super comfortable again. I certainly noticed just for me when I didn't ride a bike for like, I don't know, five years or so and then I went back on one and I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> look like a minute. I, I was able to ride right away. But it didn't feel as like natural as it used to when I was doing it every day, which is completely normal. I haven't practiced riding a bike. The skill didn't get lost, but I had to get comfortable with it again. It's one example. If you don't practice a command with your dog for a year, it's probably not going to just work right away. You may have to put a little bit of retraining effort into it. If you, it will be quickly. It's not like a completely you're starting from scratch. It'll come back like with probably minutes if you do it right, right? But you can't expect it to work unless you practice it every day. So here's, here's an example from a working dog. Let's say a couple of canine helpers have told me this too and it makes perfect sense. So we, let's say you have a dog that does building searches and he does them fairly regularly. They do drug searches and whatever they're searching for. But now the dog goes on a shift with his handler and he didn't have a building search that day. Before they clock out in the evening, when they come back to the station, they'll go to the training field and have the dog do a building search for the day, if he didn't do one at work. So a dog that does building searches, a police dog, will do a building search every day of his life to maintain the sharpness, the speed, the accuracy, knows exactly what to do and how to go about it. And if he didn't get a chance to do it during the workday, he gets to do it at the end of the day for maintenance. With the service dogs that we train, some alerts that we or some responses will happen less frequently than others. That's just the way it goes. Maybe sometimes people get better medication or better treatment. Some of the symptoms go away for a while, then maybe they flare up again. So one of the things that we generally um, give them in our instructions is if your dog doesn't do an alert, 
and I'm not talking about initial transition, I'm talking about down the line, so the dog's been with the person now for a bit, right? And we've gone through a transition phase and he does everything nicely. But if you have alerts and responses that don't happen as frequently, practice them regularly. It doesn't necessarily have to be every day, but a couple of times a week, you want the dog to do an alert that is more rare. Or you want to practice that at home again or in a, in a park or wherever you're practicing or a response of some sort, of a, alert to a blood sugar level or something like that. You want to practice that alert with your dog if it doesn't happen naturally throughout a week. You want to get a couple reps in just to make sure your dog stays sharp, always alerts on that if it happens and is always ready to go to help you if necessary. We had a client um, with seizures. Um, Grandma seizures is what she needed alerts for and then she found better medication and treatment and they basically went away. So now the dog doesn't have any, any alerts to do per se unless the uh, seizures would come back. So that, that is one of the examples where this can happen. This can happen with any other condition. Let's say we invent a, a wonderful new treatment for POTS, which is a heart condition that uh, Sarah, for example, has. And many people have now. It's actually has become something in the aftermath of COVID infections. Um, a thing that people are starting to experience and suffer and, and deal with is POTS, so it seems to be a side effect now of uh, past COVID infections become actually quite quite frequent. Um, I'm sure there will be more research and maybe we're reading more about the reasons for that, but so we'll have more people with heart conditions just based on what's been happening over the last couple of years. Just one of those things we've noticed. And let's say we come up with a marvelous treatment for it. So people no longer pass out, no longer have the condition, no longer have to deal with it. And then the dogs who've been trained for certain tasks will probably do them less frequently unless the medication fails or something else happens and it flares up again. So you could get in the situation where you have a service dog that no longer has to do this every day for you, right? just because some better treatment came along, which is great for you. It's not doesn't invalue that doesn't devalue your service dog because, for, for example, the dogs we train they usually have like a bunch of tasks. It's not just one. <laughs> so there's usually a whole bunch of them and there will always be something left, basically, task-wise, that's going to be valuable for people. Most people don't just have one condition. So most of our clients, anyways, they come with multiple issues, which is completely common, and they have multiple tasks. So if they do less of one, there's still all the others. But everything you want your dog to do has to be practiced. So the maintenance stage is super important for reliability. So there is, as I said, acquisition, that's the teaching part. Right? And fluency, that's the teaching part. And then we have the more reliability aspects. It's still part of teaching, but it's more the reliability focus in generalization, discrimination, and maintenance. And everything that you teach has to go through all these stages to become reliable. And that now includes also to not just teach the dog to do something, but it also includes, the dog, it includes teaching the dog not to do something or do something else than what he's trying to do. So it's not just about shaping and creating behaviors, it's also about controlling behaviors. And when you need to control behaviors to create reliability in execution, you can't just go, I'll teach it more, because that's not the issue. Yeah? So I hope that makes sense. So let's give a human example. I think I mentioned it in our reinforcement podcast as well, but the speed limit on the freeway. It's in most places 65, or here in California, 65, but I think it's in most places 65. And we all know what it is. 
it's not really in question. We've, we learned it, we understand it, it's posted on the road everywhere, so we know what it is. <laughs> However, how many people are driving at the speed limit? Very, very few. <laughs> like most people do not drive at the speed limit. Is that now a matter of teaching it harder, or teaching it more, or doing more of it, or sending you back to traffic school? Well, sometimes people go back to traffic school, but it's completely punitive of just wasting your time away. There is no learning taking place that's relevant. Right? You understand the speed limit. You broke it for a reason that has nothing to do with not knowing it. So you had other things that were more important to you. Competing reinforcers. Um, you don't want to stuck in traffic. You want to get home to your family. You don't want to be late for the movie. You don't want to miss the beginning of the party. You, you want to get to the event, you want to get to the concert, you just, like, you'd rather go there. And then you have the calculation in your head, well, 10 over is probably fine, they probably won't catch me with 10 over, it's not going to be a big deal, and if it is, I'd have to take 3 off and 7, eh, fine, no points. So you have all these rationalizations and, uh, and, and um, calculations, computations in your head that, yeah, even if I get caught, the consequences are minimal, <laughs> so all these factors generally can happen with the dog too. So you ask your dog to heal walking next to you and he wants to chase the squirrel. Well, there's a high motivation to chase the squirrel because they're fun to chase. It's not that they're hungry per se, but the squirrels are fun to chase. And you ask him to heal, which is inherently boring. Now you may have some treats for him, a reward for him, you may do whatever with him. But if you didn't teach a reliable reliability aspect of this particular behavior, he still wants to chase the squirrel. So if you never dealt with that, if you never explained to your dog, that's off the menu, you can't do that when we're doing this behavior. You can do it in the backyard when I'm not asking you to do stuff. But while we're here, when you're under orders per se, you can't go chase squirrels. So at this time, they're off, they're off the menu for you. If you never taught your dog this, what do you expect is going to happen? A bigger cookie is going to stop him from, uh, or pastier cookie is going to, Stop him from wanting to chase a squirrel? No, no, it's not, right? So it's the same with us. There's no difference in these things. There is competing reinforcers. There's other things we care about more, other things we want to do. It doesn't mean we don't know what's expected in this moment. We're just choosing not to do it because of other considerations. And that's exactly the same thing when we create reliability. So now we have to stop behaviors. We have to control behaviors. And the, the way we control behaviors is the same way we control behaviors with people. We're applying some form of an aversive event to ignoring commands or going after things they shouldn't be going after. So in case of people, uh, if you go back to the the Middle Ages, they were pretty brutal. I mean, they give people lashes and all kinds of stuff. It's pretty violent. Now we just put them in prison. But this is still an aversive event. We just chose a different one. It's not that that's not aversive, right? So the goal of uh, a punishment in which an aversive often are used is to make a behavior less likely to occur in the future. So you, you break some laws and put you in prison and hope that adjusts your behavior. So it, that's per se, an aversive event, and it's definitely punishment. Or oh, it's punishment if it works. It's not punishment if it didn't work. So that, that's, that's, that's another conversation. We'll get to this when we do the punishment podcast at some point. But we do the same thing with us. So we're trying to control behaviors 
if the behaviors are not acceptable to us in society. When somebody breaks laws, they can't be breaking. And you're not going to go to jail for minor violations, but you're going to go to jail for big ones. And that, that is the path we have chosen to control behaviors of humans. Now, putting a dog in jail isn't feasible and helpful in this context, but we have to apply some form of punishment, or not always punishment, but also negative reinforcement. So it would be some form of aversive used in the context of creating a reliability in a dog. And there's usually two ways that, that come into play here. One is punishment, making behaviors less likely, and there's positive and negative, and I don't want to delve into this too much right now. And then there's negative reinforcement, meaning the dog learns to first escape and then avoid something unpleasant, with a goal him never experiencing it again. So in the training process, we may use a training color, and it could be as simple as a martingale color or a prong color or a head halter, um, or in any kind of training tool that is unpleasant to experience in some way. But even pulling on a regular color is not that pleasant. I mean, it's just not effective for most dogs because they just keep pulling because they care about this less than what they want. But it's still per se aversive if a dog pulls on a regular color too. So any color is basically can be aversive in this context. And we teach the dog that you can escape this and avoid it altogether if you just listen to me. So the goal of that process would be for the dog to not experience it ever again, but he will have to go through this process of figuring this out. You can compare this to um, touching a hot oven plate as a child. I did when I was maybe, I don't know, six, eight years old, I touched a hot oven plate and I burned my hand. I had blisters, basically. <laughs> and I forgot the context in which it happened in, but I don't think I was this stupid. I just put my hand on it for, for the heck of it, but, but uh, something happened. But it is an aversive event in that moment, and it is escape and avoidance learning. So, touch the hard oven plate, ouch, pull away. So, I learned to escape the, and then I was penalized on top of it for doing it. But I learned in one instance, avoid that, don't do that. So, be more careful around hard oven plates. And I think I managed for um, like, 25 years before I accidentally bumped into one again, I forgot was still hot. But that was not about not understanding at this point. It was just being careless around something that potentially um, hasn't happened since. Twice in my life was enough to... Uh, so it's a single event learning. That's escape and avoidance learning. And there can be, obviously, you're not going to use a hot oven plate with your dog. It's just an example. But the principle is the same. So the principle with a leash and a collar, the dog learns to escape the sensation of the pulling, the, 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 um, the pulling action with a training collar. is just more effective and milder on your dog, much easier on your dog. And then he learns to avoid the whole thing by just listening to you. And that then creates also reliability in this process because avoiding something negative and knowing that you did triggers the same reward circuits in the brain as receiving a reward. So I think we talked about some reinforcement also. The, so if, if I give you, if I were to give you $1,000, you won $1,000, you would feel, hey, well, that's great, 1000 bucks. And that has that same internal effect in your brain as you knowing that you avoided losing $1,000. Because if you manage, you'd say, I could lose $1,000 and go, touch the bullet here. That has the same reward effect in the same circuit of your brain as gaining a reward. So avoiding something negative 
has the same reward effect as achieving something positive in this context. So understanding the brain chemistry of that, and again, we know this from MRI, functional MRI studies, so this is not like something made up, it's actually no, we looked. Right? So, um, has the same effect that now avoiding it makes you feel good. Same with the dog. So every time he now avoids the negative sensation, he feels good about it. So it becomes a self-reinforcing behavior, and that's when reliability also comes in because it is actually feeling good to do it because you know you avoided something. Even if the training color is no longer on the dog, and even if the dog no longer has any chance of even experiencing the negative, he's just not going to retest it because he knows that would to happen, and it feels good to not have it happen. So I feel great about executing my command here because I know I avoided something, and I feel good about it. So that, that's making a dog actually feel very good about performing command and behavior. And you see this a lot when you see high-level competition dogs because they are trained with a lot of these concepts. And they're super happy when they execute their routines. That doesn't mean there was never an aversive use in training with them. They were just used very sparingly, very concisely, following learning signs in the right order. They were never abused with them. They would just apply to specific situations to fix specific problems and fine-tune something. And that's what these tools are there for. So if you do it correctly, you have no fallout of any kind. Your dog will not be fearful. Your dog will not be aggressive. Your dog will not be timid. Your dog will not shy away from you. So none of these things that are always touted out as the, ultra, as the definite response if you use tools like this will happen if you do it correctly. But if you do it incorrectly, well, yeah, then all these things can happen and it can go down the drain pretty quickly and you can ruin a good dog in 10 minutes if you, if you don't know what you're doing. So it's absolutely possible to abuse that, but I mean, you can abuse anything. That's not really an argument. That to me is not an argument against using a tool or a process because it could be abused by someone. That's not a good standard, right? I mean, to you, it's a teaspoon. To me, it's a perfect eyeball carving tool. I know it's not. But um, that's not an argument against teaspoons, I hope, because I like my teaspoons when I stir honey in my tea. Um, they're useful, so I don't want to use them because somebody maybe used them for something. Um, was that in Utopia? I think it was Utopia. Good Amazon. They, they do exactly that. It's a little disturbing. But okay. Um, that's a little, little side joke there. Um, okay, so hopefully that makes sense. Um, you have to stop behaviors and you have to control behaviors and you have to also teach your dog to not do something to create reliability. He knows how to heal, he knows how to sit, he knows how to down, but there's a squirrel. So now I have to teach him, you can chase that thing. And for that I have to go through a different process using some negative reinforcement, maybe using some punishment depending on what the dog's about, how the, how the drive is, how, how strong the desire is. It will vary by dog what the right approach there is. But these, these, um, these principles need to be applied to create a reliability under distraction and under competing reinforcers. And if you see someone work using these, who knows what they're doing and who is good at it, you will not have a single issue for one second. It will not look horrible. The dog will not be suffering. The dog will not be screaming bloody murder like you see sometimes in these YouTube videos out there. Or, or the leaked videos or the investigative videos that sometimes pop up. None of that happens in really professional, high-level dog training when the trainer knows what they're doing. Yeah? 
So that, that is another important thing to understand about these processes. They're not cruel. They're not mean. It really just depends on do, does the trainer understand on how to do this correctly and adjust it to each dog so it's effective and not cause trouble for the animal, for the owner, or for himself. So it's, it comes all down to knowledge and understanding how this is supposed to be done correctly. But again, just because it could be abused doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing it correctly. We should just not be doing it incorrectly. Right? So that, that's the whole thing. Nothing really works well if you do it incorrectly. At least I can't think of something. If you do it poorly, it tends to not work. If you do it correctly, it tends to work just fine. So the whole point is of working with people who do it correctly. So, and um, I think we talked about this in the Hiring a Dog Trainer podcast. So when you have people who are trained by the right kinds of people, so like um, the Training Without Conflict trainers that I'm part of that group with Ivan Balabanov, there is a lot of education in, in the realm on how to do things correctly. Michael Ellis with his dog trainer school, obviously fantastic trainer who teaches people how to do things correctly. So um, that's here in America. That's internationally. There's more. This is not the only, they're not the only ones, but these are the more well-known ones here in America, where you just know people who were trained by these from start to finish. They they know what they're doing, or at least they should. They they went through the right kind of education, and so then you have people who can do these things correctly without causing problems. And okay, so I hope that um, clarifies a little bit how reliability is shaped. Now. Little side note on this, a little to close out, a uh, little story. Because I mean, if you watch the video version, you can see me smirking right now because it is kind of funny, although it's not really funny, but in a way it, it is. So in, uh, in Germany, which has obviously a rich tradition of using police dogs, more so than here, um, although they're very predominant now in America too, but in Germany it just goes back a long time. Police dogs have been around forever. And people like police dogs. The police likes using police dogs. They're generally treated well, and just, it's just an important part of police work in societies. It's not like a benign little sideshow. This is a, a major component of police work, is police dogs. And last year, in 2021, animal rights groups managed to get a ban on the use of prong colors, which are training colors, um, into the animal uh, protection law in Germany. And apparently there was not a lot of discussion and feedback at the time but when January 1st came of 2022, um, I think it was the North Rhine-Westphalia Police Department, if I recall this right, but it was one police department, it was a couple. This was one, but one was the main one we talked about. They told the politicians, well, we're no longer going to have police dogs because you took the tools away that create reliability for us so we can safely operate our high-drive dogs in civil society. And the politicians went all up in arms with, what, 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 what happened? What do you mean, like, we, we can't have police dogs anymore? But, but we were told that these tools are not needed. We, we can do everything with just, like, positive reinforcement, and we don't need any other tools at all whatsoever, because that's what animal rights groups claim. It's complete nonsense, but that's what they're being told. So now they passed this law, and now the police trainers tell them, no, that's not how this works. We don't want to be breaking the law, so we're no longer going to have police dogs. And the politicians were very upset about this because we cannot have no police dogs. That's not an option in Germany. That is not a winning, winning proposition if you're a politician. Um, so, of course, they got exemptions very quickly. 
and, and that then kind of bears the question, well, if the police needs, needs it to create the reliability of high-drive dogs in society, why can't the dog owner have that reliability? Because now they've conceded that they need these tools to create reliability. Because you do. Right? So it, it's not that, it, it's about training properly, it's training following learning science and not training following ideology. And we're going to talk more about this in future podcasts, about studies and how, how this all works. But um, if you follow proper learning science, if you follow the, the right way of doing things, training tools aren't problems. They are useful tools to solve issues and, and move on. They're not something you use forever. It's not, they're something you use to fix problems and to get dogs to ignore certain distractions. And then you move forward. But that is when you understand how to use them. This is not what you should be doing 24-7. If you, let's say, if you have to put a training collar, I'm talking pets now, working dogs, you may use tools longer for, for a variety of reasons. But when talking about pets, if you have a problem with a dog, let's say the dog chases after kids on skateboards, and you doctor around on this for months and months and months, and you don't make any progress, whatever you're doing, is clearly not working. Uh, no matter what the tool is, however it's being used isn't working in this context. So that doesn't mean the tool is wrong, it means the process is wrong. I mean, the tool may be wrong, depending on what the tool is, but the process is flawed. So if whatever training process you go through, it takes you months and months and months and you don't make any progress, or you barely make a dent in something, whatever you're doing needs, a, needs to be looked at by someone else probably with a skilled eye to see what the flaw may be in this process. Because the instructions are most likely very unclear to your dog, no matter what you think about it. So clarity is super important and these stuff, these things are used to create reliability and fix problems and then you move on. So um, the, other, the other thing about this is um, banning tools that allow stopping behaviors and controlling behaviors effectively and quickly doesn't prevent what people are trying to prevent. Uh, so a lot of things are overused, e-colors especially, they are, can be useful for certain things, but they're completely overused in, in dog training. They shouldn't be used as much as they are. They, again, put it on, you fix a problem, get rid of it. It's not something you should be doing forever. It's not something that should be a way of life for your dog. And they're overused to an extent that is really questionable. So I, I get where the criticism is coming from. I don't like the overuse either. But I don't think banning them is a good idea. Because here's what happens when you ban tools. And you haven't, maybe you've seen this. You can find it on YouTube. I think it was in Finland, um, Sweden, Norway. Well, one of those. There was a, one of those countries uh, in the Scandinavian area. And it was a protection sport club or training and they have banned all tools, I think. Uh, I think they banned definitely e-colors. I think they banned prong colors too. They banned everything up there, whatever the country was. So an investigative reporter went into one of those um, protection sport facilities and filmed with a hidden camera. And what he filmed was pretty disturbing because it now, because people don't have training tools that don't injure dogs available to them, they are resorting to quite violent behavior. So you see beating of dogs, you see some people use kettle prongs. Um, it, it, it gets, it's not making it better. It just puts it 
in the shadows and it leads to animal abuse that didn't exist before because what it is, it's human nature you're dealing with. You're dealing with a certain element that thinks it's okay to do stuff like that to dogs and have no problem doing it. And yes, that's unacceptable. We should punish them. But it's who people are. It's how people are. It's what they do. You take one thing away, they pick another. It's not that the tool was the issue. It's the mindset of the person that's the issue. And you don't get rid of the mindset by taking a tool away that won't injure a dog, ultimately. They'll just pick a tool that will injure a dog. Because it's the way they think about it that is the issue. And how you ultimately fix this, I may speculate on this all day long. Uh, but it's not going to get into that. But I, I really don't have an answer either. But the point is, if you ban effective things that don't cause injuries, if used correctly, the people who will cause injuries will just cause them differently. They will just pick something else. It's, it's not that that's going to fix anything or improve animal welfare and make it better for anybody. It's actually going to make it worse. And that's kind of the point. So, anyway. Um, okay. So reliability requires to also control behaviors and stop behaviors and not just teaching more. That's kind of the key message of, of this podcast. And that's what we focused on like 98% of the time. So hope that makes sense. And I uh, hope that helps a little bit understanding of how reliable behaviors are created. And that there is just more to than just teaching the thing itself that we're trying to teach. Okay, that's it for today. Hope this was useful. And I'll see you next time. Bye.